You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 388 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. In most histories of the Civil War that you'll pick up, little if any attention is paid to the battles and actions in the Trans-Mississippi area, that is the vast region west of the Mississippi River. While the scale and scope of the fighting in the Trans-Mississippi was overshadowed by the clashes of the major armies farther east, the stakes, nonetheless, were still high. Those stakes included access to the region's abundant resources, which became increasingly important to the Confederacy as federal armies overran vital agricultural areas in other parts of the South. Also at stake was control of Kansas and the border state of Missouri for the Federals, and on the Confederate side, control of Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. Then, too, thrown into the mix was the Indian Territory, which encompassed present-day Oklahoma. For Federal and Confederate forces, the aim of the war in the Indian Territory was control of the Texas Road. The road was the major north-south transportation artery through the region. Control of the Texas Road, much of which ran through the eastern part of the Indian Territory, was crucial to one side or the other exerting control over the entire region, since the Indian Territory was strategically located west of Missouri and Arkansas, north of Texas, and south of Kansas. Taking all of that into account, it's no surprise that control of the Texas Road became the focal point of the fighting in the Indian Territory, including the largest military action to take place there during the war, the July 1863 Battle of Honey Springs. We know that we have a lot of listeners from all over the world, and so some of you who aren't terribly familiar with American history may be wondering what we're talking about when we mention this thing called the Indian Territory. This is actually a subject that's quite personal for me, since my family on my mom's side is from Oklahoma, going back to these times. 
But before it was the state of Oklahoma, this region was known as the Indian Territory. Its origins lie in the U.S. government's policy of relocating Native Americans, mostly forcibly, to this land west of Arkansas and north of the Red River. By the eve of the Civil War, Indian Territory was populated by about 55,000 Native people, both full-bloods and mixed-race, 3,000 whites, and around 8,300 slaves. The Native people weren't U.S. citizens, nor was the area an organized territory of the United States. It had no territorial governor or legislature, but instead the U.S. Office of Indian Affairs was responsible for managing matters in the region. The U.S. government enforced its Indian policy through a number of army garrisons situated in Indian Territory at places such as Forts Washita, Arbuckle, Gibson, and Cobb. From 1831 to 1842, it was the policy of the U.S. government to forcibly remove Indians, primarily from the southeastern United States, and relocate them to this unorganized territory west of the Mississippi. These were primarily Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Chickasaw, and Seminole, known collectively as the Five Civilized Tribes. However, also living in the region by the time of the Civil War were other smaller bands of Native Americans who had immigrated there, either voluntarily or by force, including Wichita, Seneca, Shawnee, and others. By the time of the outbreak of the Civil War in the spring of 1861, a number of factors split the allegiance of Native Americans in Indian Territory between the Union and the Confederacy. The division within tribes had deep roots stemming from the factionalism created by the differences of opinion over the wisdom of standing up to the U.S. government and its removal policies in the 1830s. By the outbreak of the Civil War, the division within tribes was also linked to the differing attitudes toward slavery and slaveholding among Native peoples, some of whom were full-bloods who tried to maintain traditional customs, while most mixed-race people in Indian Territory were more culturally and economically similar to Southern whites. Early in the war, in 1861, federal authorities in Washington decided to withdraw the soldiers from the undermanned garrisons in Indian Territory and redeploy those troops up to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. In turn, the Confederate government wasted little time in moving to fill the void left by the departure of the federal soldiers. It did so not only by sending rebel troops, primarily from Texas, to secure the vacated posts, but also by sending representatives to try to win over the allegiance of the region's inhabitants. The importance that Confederate politicians placed on Indian affairs can be seen in the organization of their new government. The delegates to the Confederate Congress represented the 11 states of the Confederacy, as well as Kentucky, Missouri, 
Arizona Territory and the Indians of the Cherokee, Choctaw, Creek, Seminole, and Chickasaw Nations. Territorial and Indian delegates couldn't vote, but still, well, there you go, they were still given representation. At any rate, matters concerning relations with specific Indian nations were placed in the hands of the War Department by an act of the Provisional Confederate Congress in February 1861. A little less than a month later, in March, and even before the firing on Fort Sumter, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was officially created within the Confederate War Department by the Provisional Congress. 51-year-old Albert Pike was given the title of Special Commissioner of Indian Affairs and was charged with the responsibility for cementing alliances with the various native peoples in Indian Territory and encouraging their men to, hopefully, serve in the Confederate military. Earlier in his life, Pike had ventured west from Massachusetts, eventually settling in Arkansas in 1833. In 1837, he was admitted to the bar and practiced law primarily in Indian Territory, representing Native peoples in their disputes with the U.S. government, and in the process, forging relationships with them and earning their trust. Pike opposed secession, but when it became obvious that Arkansas would side with the Confederacy, he threw his lot with his adopted state. As it turned out, Albert Pike was the perfect man to act as the new Confederate government's first ambassador, so to speak, to the native peoples in Indian Territory. Traveling throughout the length and breadth of the Indian Territory in the summer of 1861, Pike was successful in forming alliances with the Creeks, Chickasaws, Choctaws, and Seminoles, as well as other smaller nations such as the Seneca and Shawnee. However, it wasn't until October 1861 that Pike succeeded in signing a treaty of alliance with John Ross, the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Ross favored neutrality and didn't want to get involved in the civil war between the northern whites and southern whites. But he'd been under considerable pressure from pro-Confederate Cherokee, men such as Stand Wadey, who had already organized a regiment of warriors and headed off north toward the border with Kansas to guard against a possible return of the federal soldiers. Pike, aided by well-respected Indian agent Douglas Cooper, may have succeeded in forming alliances with the various nations on behalf of the Confederacy, but there were still a good many Indians, particularly among the Creek, who wished to remain loyal to the Union. In the fall of 1861, thousands of Creek, who refused to recognize the Treaty of Alliance with the Confederates, prepared to march to Kansas to place themselves under the protection of federal forces there. Cooper, who had been given a colonel's commission in the Confederate Army, was ordered to deal with the situation. To prevent the breakaway Creek from leaving Indian Territory, he called on pro-Confederate Creek warriors and other Indian Home Guard units, and in doing so, Cooper began what amounted to a civil war within the borders of the territory. 
Cooper and his force discovered almost 4,000 Creek men, women, and children, along with many other Indians from assorted other nations, encamped with their livestock and all their worldly possessions. Considering these Indians to be a threat to Confederate authority in the territory, Cooper attacked them on November 19th at Round Mountain, near the junction of the Cimarron and Arkansas Rivers. The Loyal Creek fought back, and at Round Mountain, and at Caving Banks near modern-day Tulsa on December 9th, they stymied Cooper's efforts to halt their trek toward Kansas. However, after almost 1,400 Confederate cavalrymen under Colonel James McIntosh arrived to reinforce him, on December 26th, Cooper once again attacked the refugees. Weakened by exhaustion, cold weather, and hunger, the Loyal Creek couldn't withstand the Confederate onslaught. Warriors mixed with men, women, and children fled in panic, pursued by white Confederate cavalrymen and Stan Wadey's Cherokee Regiment. The Creek, who managed to escape, finally made their way to Kansas. Despite the general success of Confederate efforts in Indian Territory in the summer and fall of 1861, the action taken against the Creek fleeing to Kansas had long-term ramifications for Confederate Indian relations, not the least of which was that hundreds of disenchanted and embittered refugees joined up with the Federal forces in Kansas, and those warriors would return to the Indian Territory seeking revenge. In the summer of 1862, 6,000 federal troops, together with their native allies, marched on Tahlequah, the Cherokee capital, and on Fort Gibson, a strategically located post where the Texas Road crossed the Arkansas River. The offensive soon petered out because of overstretched supply lines and the incompetence of the expedition's commander, Colonel William Weir, but when the Federals returned to Kansas, they took John Ross with them. Ross then went to Washington, where he argued that he had been pressured into signing a treaty with the Confederacy. The exiled principal chief of the Cherokee Nation then issued a proclamation of Cherokee loyalty to the Union, and watched as three of his sons enlisted in the U.S. Army. However, with John Ross in Washington, Stan Wadey used the opportunity to declare himself the new principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, and proceeded to consolidate his power. Some of you may be familiar with Wadey's name, since, as a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, he became the last rebel general to lay down his arms and surrender his command on June 23, 1865, in Indian Territory, two and a half months after Robert E. Lee surrendered the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox. During the war, Stan Wadey and his Cherokee Mounted Rifles fought against federal forces in conventional battles, such as Pea Ridge in Arkansas and numerous skirmishes, but he also led his men in attacks on Unionist Cherokee civilians and farms, and on raids against Creek and Seminole and others in Indian Territory who chose to remain loyal to the Union. To say the Civil War would leave an unhappy legacy in the Indian Territory is a considerable understatement. The fighting amongst the Cherokee was bloody and terrible, 
but it was just one piece of a larger picture that saw divisions within many of the Indian nations result in widespread and sustained violence between factions throughout the war years, as across the length and breadth of the region, families were murdered, homes vandalized, crops burned, and livestock butchered. Confederate control of Indian Territory went virtually unchallenged until June of 1862, when, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, federal soldiers and their native allies marched on Tahlequah and Fort Gibson. However, after that expedition withdrew back to Kansas, it was April 1863 before the Federals returned to Indian Territory. In April 1863, another federal expedition, this time commanded by Colonel William Phillips, came down out of Kansas and reoccupied Fort Gibson. The federal presence at Fort Gibson was a direct challenge to Confederate authority in the territory. Occupation of the post allowed the Federals to control not only the north-south traffic on the Texas Road, but also let them project their influence up and down the Arkansas River Valley with its numerous settlements and farms. In addition, before long, about 7,000 loyal Unionist Indians men, women, and children from various nations had made their way to the fort and encamped in its shadow, seeking protection. In January 1863, on the Confederate side, Brigadier General William Steele had been appointed district commander with responsibility for Indian Territory, but since he had zero experience with the affairs of that turbulent region, he wisely stayed put in his headquarters at Fort Smith, Arkansas, and left Cooper to oversee Confederate interests in the territory. By that time, Douglas Cooper had been promoted from colonel to brigadier general in the Confederate Army, and he realized that federal occupation of Fort Gibson couldn't go unchallenged. The Federals were in a somewhat precarious position since they had to rely on a 175-mile-long line of communication and supply back to Fort Scott in Kansas, and the wagon trains that came down the Texas Road to Gibson suffered constant harassment from rebel-mounted detachments like Stand Wadey's Cherokee. But Cooper knew that simply harassing enemy wagon trains wouldn't be enough to force the Federals out of Fort Gibson, so he started to gather the men he would need to forcibly eject them. By July, he had concentrated about 6,000 soldiers and warriors at Honey Springs, about 20 miles southwest of Fort Gibson along the Texas Road. Another 3,000 Confederate soldiers, under the command of Brigadier General William K. Bell, were marching west from Fort Smith, Arkansas, and were expected to link up with Cooper's force at Honey Springs on July 17th. Since the Federal soldiers and their native allies at Fort Gibson numbered barely over 3,000 men, Cooper was confident that once he and Cabell, with a force of 9,000, linked up, they would easily win the day and send the enemy fleeing back to Kansas. On the federal side, Major General James Blunt, commander of the District of the Frontier, 
also thought that once the two Confederate generals linked up, they'd be able to handily trounce Colonel Phillips and the garrison at Fort Gibson. So to keep that from happening, Blunt, who had come down from Kansas, decided he would save Fort Gibson by attacking Cooper at Honey Springs before Cabell arrived from Arkansas. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Spoiler alert, but as far as Blunt's plan to attack Cooper at Honey Springs before Cabell arrived there from Fort Smith on July 17th, well, Blunt would do it, but he cut it close. Really close. James Blunt's name may ring a bell with some of you from our coverage of the Battle of Prairie Grove, which, as y'all will recall, took place in northwest Arkansas in December 1862, just down the road from my hometown of Fayetteville. Exactly. In any case, by the summer of 1863, Blunt was in Kansas in command of the District of the Frontier with his headquarters at Fort Scott. An unsuccessful attempt by Stand Wadey to turn back a 300-wagon Union supply train on July 1st at Cabin Creek underscored Fort Gibson's vulnerability, and Blunt left Fort Scott on July 5th headed south for the Indian Territory. According to his after-action report, he arrived at Fort Gibson on July 11th. There were really no secrets in Indian Territory, so Colonel Phillips had known all along what was going on over on the Confederate side. He knew not only about Cooper's concentration at Honey Springs, but also about the march of Cabell's reinforcements from Arkansas. And so, once Blunt arrived at Fort Gibson and assessed the situation, he decided a good offense would be the best defense, and he put together a force of about 3,000 men and 12 pieces of artillery to take the field and attack and defeat Cooper at Honey Springs 
before Cabell arrived on the scene. Blunt became quite ill on the expedition, possibly from malaria, and spent most of July 14th in bed fighting what he called a quote-unquote burning fever. Nevertheless, on the 15th, he oversaw the completion of flatboats to transport his force across the rain-swollen Arkansas River and issued six days of rations. After personally leading a force of 250 troopers from the 6th Kansas Cavalry, as well as four artillery pieces that drove away enemy pickets upriver from Fort Gibson, Blunt got his force across the swollen Arkansas late on the afternoon of July 16th. The Federals began tramping down the Texas Road at 11 p.m. and continued through the wet night. The march through the rain and dark brought them to within striking distance of Honey Springs before Blunt called a halt. After skirmishing with and driving away a Confederate reconnaissance party near Chimney Mountain, a height that offered a commanding view of the surrounding area, Blunt discovered that Cooper had drawn up his force just a bit farther down the Texas Road, along Elk Creek, about a mile and a half north of Honey Springs. Around 8 o'clock on the morning of Friday, July 17th, Blunt called a halt just a stone's throw to the north of the Rebel Line along Elk Creek and ordered his men to prepare a quick bite to eat for breakfast before going into battle. Meanwhile, Blunt and his staff rode ahead to reconnoiter the enemy position. He saw that Cooper had taken advantage of the terrain on the north side of Elk Creek by deploying his Confederate troops and their native allies in the shelter of the trees and brush that lined the course of the stream. Estimates of Cooper's troop strength on the morning of the 17th vary, generally ranging from 4,500 men to 5,700. In any case, he was down several hundred men since earlier he had sent Stan Wadey and some of his horsemen riding off to the east toward Weber's Falls, hoping they'd create a diversion. When that strategy failed, all Cooper ended up doing with his failed trick was keeping Wadey and those men out of the coming battle at Honey Springs. As the Federals approached down the Texas Road, Cooper's line there on the north side of Elk Creek consisted of the 1st and 2nd Cherokee Mounted Rifles on the right, the 1st and 2nd Creek Regiments on the left, and Colonel Thomas Bass's Texas Brigade in the center. Bass's command was made up of the 20th Texas Cavalry, dismounted, the 29th Texas Cavalry, and the 5th Texas Partisan Rangers. Just to the left of the Texas Road, Captain Roswell Lee deployed his four-gun battery, which was Cooper's only artillery support. Besides sending Wadey and several hundred men off toward Weber's Falls, Cooper further canceled any numerical edge he had by holding back the 1st Choctaw and Chickasaw Regiment and two squadrons of Texas Cavalry in reserve south of Elk Creek. At 10 a.m., after they'd had a bite of breakfast and a brief rest, Blunt formed his 3,000 men into two columns. 
He hoped to conceal his true numbers from the enemy for as long as possible, so he marched the columns to within a quarter mile of the Confederate position before he quickly deployed them into line of battle. On the Federal right, west of the road, under Colonel William Judson, was the 1st Brigade, which included the 2nd Indian Home Guard, six companies of the 3rd Wisconsin Cavalry, and a regiment of black troops, the 1st Kansas Infantry. On the Federal left, to the east of the Texas Road, under Colonel Phillips, was the 2nd Brigade, which included six companies of the 2nd Colorado Infantry, the 1st Indian Home Guard, and elements of the 6th Kansas Cavalry. For artillery support, Blunt had the half a dozen 12-pounder Napoleons, four 12-pounder mountain howitzers, and two 6-pounder steel howitzers of the 2nd and 3rd Kansas Light Artillery. The battle began at mid-afternoon when Blunt sent out skirmishers from his line and Captain Henry Hopkins' battery of the 3rd Kansas Artillery opened fire. On the Confederate side, Captain Lee's battery returned the Federal cannon fire. Lee had three 12-pounder mountain howitzers and, interestingly, a two-and-a-fourth-inch bronze mountain rifle, which was one of only 18 produced at the Tredegar Iron Works in Richmond. How that particular gun got from Virginia to the prairies of Oklahoma is apparently a bit of a mystery, but, well, there it was, as part of Lee's battery at Honey Springs, and it joined the other Confederate artillery pieces in returning the Federal cannon fire. The Texans drew first blood in this artillery duel when they scored a direct hit on one of the Federal's 12-pounder Napoleons. However, the Kansans responded by disabling one of the rebels' howitzers, and since the Confederates had started the battle already down 12 guns to four, this loss put them at an even greater disadvantage. Speaking of Confederate difficulties, Cooper, much to his chagrin, was discovering as yet another rain squall swept the battlefield, that the precipitation and damp conditions in general was the worst possible thing for the gunpowder his troops were using, since it was an inferior grade imported from Mexico and it became next to useless in the wet. And, as if that wasn't bad enough, it's estimated that up to a quarter of the troops on the Confederate side mostly among the native units, lacked serviceable firearms, and instead went into battle at Honey Springs, armed with a motley assortment of personal weapons of dubious quality, like ancient smoothbore muskets, old hunting rifles and shotguns, and whatnot. On the Confederate right, the 1st and 2nd Cherokee held their own against a dismounted advance by members of the 6th Kansas Cavalry. As the firing became general all along the line, Cooper realized that the Federals were present in numbers greater than he'd originally thought. He later said the enemy force was, quote, larger than reported and larger than I supposed they would bring from Gibson. When Blunt shifted some guns to a better firing position, he also gave orders for Colonel James Williams to advance the 1st Kansas, 
telling him to, quote, move your regiment to the front and support this battery. In case the fire of the federal guns proved especially effective, Blunt also gave him permission to capture the Confederate artillery pieces, quote, if the opportunity offers. Like Blunt, Williams was a dedicated abolitionist, and like Blunt, he fully believed that black soldiers were the fighting equals of white troops. Since its formation in August 1862, the 1st Kansas Infantry, most of whose men were escaped slaves from Arkansas, Missouri, and the Indian Territory, had drilled zealously and had first put their training to good use at a skirmish at Island Mound, Missouri, on October 29, 1862. Before going into battle at Honey Springs, Williams reminded his men of the so-called Sherwood Massacre on May 18, 1863, when Confederate guerrillas led by Thomas Livingston overwhelmed and promptly murdered a 16-man foraging party from the 1st Kansas at Sherwood, Missouri. Williams now told his men, quote, Show the enemy this day that you are not asking for quarter, and that you know how and are eager to fight for your freedom. Then, more practically, since he knew most troops in the heat of combat tended to fire high, Williams reminded them, quote, Keep cool and do not fire until you receive the order, and then aim deliberately below the waist belt. At Honey Springs, James Williams led the 1st Kansas forward to within 40 yards of the 29th Texas before ordering his men to open fire. However, the Texans fired at the same moment, and Williams was severely wounded. In the exchange of bullets, the 29th's colonel, Charles DeMorse, was injured in the hand. Williams' second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel John Bowles, took over, and the 1st Kansas engaged in a vicious firefight with the Texans. Meanwhile, to the Kansans' right, the men of the 2nd Colorado also fired on the Texans. It was said each of the Coloradans was a dead shot and that at Honey Springs, as a testimony to their marksmanship, they, quote, killed a great number and not a man was found but was not shot in the head or neck. What would be the battle's turning point began when the Federal's 2nd Indian Home Guard on the right of the 1st Kansas unintentionally strayed between the Kansans and the two Texas regiments holding the Confederate center. After realizing their mistake, the Indians scampered back out of the way, but the Texans mistakenly concluded that that retrograde movement amongst the Federals was an actual retreat and they charged forward to exploit this supposed breach in the enemy line. But of course, it wasn't an actual retreat, and there was no hole in the federal line. Instead, the men of the 1st Kansas calmly allowed the Texans to come within 25 yards of their line. Then Bowles gave the order and fire flashed from nearly 700 muskets, blasting the rebels with the storm of lead, and the Texans' confident advance was brought to a sudden and bloody halt. As the shattered ranks of the Texans staggered backward, their regimental colors fell, 
only to be picked up by another soldier, who in turn went down as the well-drilled and disciplined soldiers of the 1st Kansas reloaded and fired again and again. As a third Texan raised the banner, he was also cut down. With the 29th and 20th Texas falling back in confusion after the repulse of their doomed charge, the center of the Confederate position had been shattered beyond repair. The Federal line surged forward and the route was on. Cooper later said that at this critical moment, the Confederates' native allies were, quote, wet and disheartened by finding their guns almost useless. As the Confederate line disintegrated, the situation quickly produced what Private Dallas Bowman of the 1st Choctaw and Chickasaw admitted was a quote-unquote general stampede. Now Cooper learned why his decision to establish the Confederate position on the north side of Elk Creek was a poor choice, tactically speaking, since once his line was broken, his forces had just one avenue of retreat, that is, south across the one bridge over the stream. Cooper ordered the Texans to hold the bridge until he could get his guns away to safety and until the other units made it to the south side of Elk Creek. The Texans, stubbornly holding back the Federals, managed to get the job done. Once the Confederates and their native allies reached the south side of the stream, they continued withdrawing down the Texas road toward Honey Springs, while the units Cooper had held in reserve, the 1st Choctaw and Chickasaw, and the Texas Cavalry Squadrons, formed a rear guard and covered the retreat. The rear guard of the 1st Choctaw and Chickasaw and Texas cavalrymen delayed the Federals long enough to allow Cooper to get his artillery and his supply wagons away and to set fire to the extra supplies at Honey Springs that couldn't be carried off. But the men of the 1st Kansas arrived in time to put out the fires and save a good deal. The rebels also left behind a stark reminder of what had been at stake for the black soldiers. 500 pairs of iron shackles that the Texans had brought with them to use on any escaped slaves that were captured serving in the Union Army. The battle was over about four hours after it began, and then about two hours down the road after retreating from Honey Springs, Cooper met up with the vanguard of Cabell's force. Needless to say, if Cabell had arrived in time for the battle, the outcome would likely have been different. But in the end, Blunt's plan to attack Cooper at Honey Springs before Cabell arrived there from Fort Smith paid off. It was close, a matter of half a day, but by the time Cabell linked up with Cooper, it was too late for the Confederates. Cooper reported his losses as 134 killed and wounded, with 47 missing. He maintained the Federals lost over 200 killed and wounded, but Blunt reported his own losses as 17 killed and 60 wounded. He said he buried 150 Confederates on the battlefield, took 77 prisoners, and wounded an estimated 400. Blunt, who was still quite ill, declined to pursue the retreating Confederates. Besides being almost out of ammunition, he reported his, 
quote, horses and infantry were completely exhausted, end quote. After ordering his forces to bivouac for the night on the battlefield, treat the wounded, and bury the dead, including the enemy, his column started back to Fort Gibson late the following day. The Federal victory at the Battle of Honey Springs on July 17, 1863, saved Fort Gibson and was a major blow to the Confederates. The loss of the depot at Honey Springs and its supplies was a disaster for the rebels, who were already operating on a logistical shoestring. The battle not only marked the end of organized fighting in Indian Territory, but it opened the way for Blunt to move on Fort Smith, Arkansas, which was captured two months later. From then on, the Confederates' diminishing presence in Indian Territory would belong primarily to mounted guerrilla units, such as Stand Wadey's Cherokees and William Quantrill's Raiders. Honey Springs is also noteworthy because it was the only major Civil War engagement in which white soldiers were in the minority on both sides. One day before the 54th Massachusetts charged to glory a thousand miles to the east outside Charleston, South Carolina, the black soldiers of the 1st Kansas anchored the federal line at Honey Springs and proved their worth as fighting men. Blunt gave the regiment its due, saying in his official report, quote, The first Kansas colored particularly distinguished itself. They fought like veterans and preserved their line unbroken throughout. Their coolness and bravery I have never seen surpassed. They were in the hottest of the fight and opposed to Texas troops twice their number, whom they completely routed. The settlement at Honey Springs completely disappeared soon after the end of the Civil War with the construction of the Missouri, Kansas, and Texas Railroad, and the Texas Road was closed with the opening of U.S. Highway 69 in the 1920s. But you can still visit the battlefield today, since over a thousand acres at the site, along with a visitor center, is run by the Oklahoma Historical Society and in 2013 was designated a National Historic Landmark. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is When the Wolf Came, The Civil War and the Indian Territory by Mary Jane Ward. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade and supporting the podcast in that way, just like Brett D., Desmond J., Brian L., Dawson B., William A., and JLC7304 all did this past week. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.